Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. I'm Magic Brian, your host for this growing collection of interviews. In this episode, I had the pleasure to talk to the infectious bubble of energy that is Abby Collins. We connected over Skype, so please bear with the quality of the recording. You can also watch the interview on our YouTube channel. As always, I'll have a link for it in the episode notes. In our conversation, Abby told me about how she started as a dancer, got her master's in drama, discovered her interest in street theater when she saw Stompy performing at her first class in then meeting David Castle there the following year, setting her off on a path to being a street performer. She credits David with teaching her everything she knows about street performing and how he convinced her to write her first show on a train ride from Poland to Belgium. She talks about getting a wake-up call when she first started working the streets in Melbourne, how she offended a crowd with gigantic fake boobs, the value of street theater, her novel, due out in March of 2021, called Everybody's Doing It, and so much more. The conversation is also peppered with some of those great little stories from the pitch that happen when you push the envelope as Abby has done her whole career. Hi, Abby. Hi, Brian. Welcome to Stories from the Pitch. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, we've been trying to get you for quite a long time, a number of years. And uh, we were going to do it over Skype like four or five years ago, but the quality is so shit that we were going to wait till I saw you in person. But now, I don't know when I'm going to see you in person, so we're like, screw it. Yeah. Let's just do it over yeah. Skype. Global pandemic to make yeah. it happen. Yeah. And then also now we have a nice video version so we can people can watch us talk. Excellent. And see how beautiful you look. Your <sighs> hair. This yeah. hair. And, you know, get getting the old lady neck. So wearing a lot of polo necks these days. <laughs> okay. Keeping the hands out of you. Uh-huh. Either go for the Madonna fingerless gloves or just keep the hands down. <laughs> You look great, Abby. Um, so I want to find out your story from uh, how you got started street performing and your journey through it all. Uh, and you, I know you have, yeah, from back to the beginning, like how did you start? What did you start? What were you doing? What got you into performing? Um, okay, so it's a long story. It's a very long story. It's nearly 50 year long story. I, um, since I was tiny, I danced and I always loved performing, but I was always very shy. Like I am actually, no one ever believes this, but I'm quite a naturally shy person. Uh-huh. Doesn't show. And, um, no, I think, you know, I think performers kind of tend to fall into two schools. You know, they're either like gregarious and they're like, look at me because I love you looking at me. Or they're like, look at me because I just want to make you feel good. Cause if you feel good, then I'll feel better about me as a person and um, I think I definitely fall into that second category so I was all I was really painfully shy when I was a kid but I always loved dancing and putting on accents and doing Shirley Bassey impressions when I was seven and all sorts of nonsense um, and then I was headed to be a ballerina I How um, so I think I was about eight or nine and the Royal Ballet decided to um, well, decided, I think the Arts Council, so well, this was back in the 80s, the Arts Council said, you know, getting all this public funding, we should really make ballet more accessible to the people. And so they went around schools, like ordinary schools, auditioning kids to join the Royal Ballet. And wow. so I auditioned, was running around the school gym in my knickers, pretending to be a swan. And I got through the first round, and I think I got through the second round, and I got to the third round and it crashed out. And I was absolutely devastated. And then there was a, an amazing ballet teacher and she picked up all the ugly ducklings and she trained us for a year. And the next year she put us through the audition again and I got in. 
but it was horrendous because you know back then I was like you know I'm like I was I grew up in Dagenham which is kind of sort of like part of greater London quite rough ready uh-huh. very working class blue collar which I'm very proud of but you know there's me doing doing me ballet and I'm doing me ballet doing me plies and stuff and you know everybody was like they were terribly terribly toffee nosed there and they were awful to me mm. they were absolutely awful to me they the first day of ballet class you know they measured everybody up for the official royal ballet leotard and ballet shoes and they got to me and they went you're okay and on they moved and I was like the only kid I mean god it's like all for nanny really? I was the only kid in the class who didn't have the official why would so, they do that I have no no idea. I mean, obviously, it's changed a lot now. It's, you know, not as elitist as it was. So anyway, yeah. I sort of, after three months of going there, I said to my mum, I don't like it, mum. I don't want to go anymore. And she's like, yeah, scrub round it, babe. And now I'm like, mum, why did you say scrub round it? Royal Ballet, I could have been a contender. I could have been a contender. <laughs> yeah. um, so... So that was the end of, it wasn't the, I carried on dancing. I did gym at school and then I, um, but you know, even though I was really shy, I couldn't quite kick the performance thing and I it went through my schooling. Then I went to kind of like a tertiary college before university and studied drama and we got into the national drama competition, which was quite a big deal. Wow. I got a special mention from the judge. We didn't get anywhere, but... <laughs> Um, and then I went to university and studied drama and really all I wanted to do was perform but I veered towards the academic side more because I was thought I'll never get a job as a performer. Did you but, want to be an actress in, in, in stage or? Yeah I mean I, I, I never said that's what I, that secretly it was what I wanted but I never said it's what I want I just didn't you know just didn't have the balls didn't have the gumption to do it. But you knew you um, wanted to be a performer of some sort. Yeah, but I was, you know, I was like wrestling between this like gregarious, oh God, I love entertaining people. I love making people laugh. I love just, yeah, I love pleasing people. Don't take that the wrong way. (laughs) (laughs) And feeling like that, but also feeling just really nervous and shy. And I've had problems with anxiety my whole life. So it was really like, it's literally, it's kind of like Fight Club. Yeah. (laughs) I was Tyler Durden. I was like beating myself up. I want to be yeah. out there. I'm too shy. And um, from after I did my bachelor's, I went on and did a master's. But I sort of, you know, was on the periphery of festival culture and I went to Glastonbury and I saw Stompy. You know, Stompy. Oh, yeah, yeah, Stompy, of course. And so one of the things that first got me into street performing was seeing Stompy, you know, there were these lads walking across Glastonbury and Stompy was walking behind them following and totally taking the piss and I thought oh my god look you can people people will applaud if you take the piss out of someone so I thought I thought that was brilliant and um now, did, you did, little, did you go to Glastonbury to just see it or were you part of a group or something I was doing a little bit of walkabout stuff I was doing this sort of um I, I'd got a ticket in no fee but I'd got a ticket in and I God, I don't even know what happened now. I, I met up with this guy and we decided to do this uh, partly political walkabout. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was when the Criminal Justice Bill, which was a thing in you know British law, which totally changed the complexion of British law. It was kind of like the beginning of the end of, of, of our civil rights. You know, we mm-hmm. don't have like a civil liberties in this country. And it, it basically 
So there's been the rave culture in the UK, you know, and the, the, the right to gather, which also affects us as street performers. And, um, you know, and it was sort of like with the privatisation of public space and that kind of stuff. So I met this guy and we just literally threw this walkabout together where we were walking around and saying, vote for injustice at the next election. Vote for injustice as a vote for tax cuts, benefit cuts and haircuts. Vote for injustice. Because it was Glastonbury, you know, and everybody's so trolling. People were like, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> we were two Tory MPs. So um, I really enjoyed doing that. And then I uh, did my mastery. And the next year I went back and with a group that I've been working with in Bristol, I was living in, I'd moved to Bristol in the West Country by then and um, did a sort of like trapeze fire show thing. And there was a group called the Tofu Love Frogs. And they were like a kind of anarchist funk, uh, anarchist punk folk band. And they asked a bunch of us to get on stage. Yeah, they're brilliant. Or Chris Tofu now, like he run, runs an agency. Um, I think he's an OBE now. Um, anyway, he uh, we, we got on stage and we did a dance to their with one of their songs about police arresting people. And there were loads of hippies spaced out in the front row going, oh, don't get off stage, leave them alone, because they thought we were real policemen. Uh -huh. um, so you seem like and, in the beginning times you just tried to do things that really upset other people, <laughs> played characters that... Yeah. played with that yeah that. i guess so for someone who sort of likes pleasing people but also i'd always you know my, my family are quite left wing and i think i come from sort of like a family agitated so even though i liked pleasing people and i was shy i still liked pushing people's buttons yeah um so also that year i they needed someone to jump on at the outside circus stage this is oh, one of the acts hasn't turned up can you go on and i just bought a bag of stuff with me so i put on this like tragic 1980s workout outfit and i just went out and created this character and i had everybody laying on their backs on sunday morning the clock and they, you know like doing leg presses and i was walking around going oh you've not washed your knicker since thursday have you love and <laughs> it just and um so you just yeah, improvised so, the whole character the whole thing yeah, just, went, just just went out there and improvised and played with people oh. and um and also that year i met david castle uh -huh. <laughs> who uh hotcha schmarzinski and um it was kind of love at first sight, and he just said, come away with me. What year was that? <laughs> oh, my God. When was that? 1995? Wow. Five? I want to say 95. I think 95, yeah. Yeah. And he said, come away with me. I'll teach you how to do a street show. And I went, yeah, okay. I'd finished my master's degree, and so I just back to Bristol, packed up some stuff and went right, I'm off to Europe for the summer. Wow. And then travelled around Europe with him, watching him do street shows. And <clears throat> David did, he taught me everything I know about street performing. It was like street theatre 101. This is what you need to do to build a crowd. Mm -hmm. He said, keep a crowd. This is how you can put a street show together. This is how you should pass the hat. This is when you should do the hat pitch. And so... I flew out to Prague and met him, and um, then we took an overnight train from Prague to uh, Belgium because he was going to the Kinsterfeesten festival. Uh -huh. And on the train, he's like, "Right, Ray Abbey, write a street show." And I was like, 
Right. And I'd, I'd thrown a tutu in my bag, a pair of point shoes. And so overnight on the train to, uh, from Prague to, to, to Belgium. Belgium. Yeah. You wrote a show. Show a Madame Shushu's Fire on the Nile, and I'm going to be a ballet diva, and then I'm going to get people out of the audience, and they're going to be the corps de ballet, and there's going to be a love interest. And then I got to Ghent and got out on the street and did the show. And when I first started, I had real beginner's luck. I think it was just, you know, the adrenaline driving me forward, and also because, as you know, Ghent Festival is because it's. Uh, you know the history of the festival it's a medieval festival so it's literally that carnival culture and spirit and anything goes and never forget Cyril Minetti Miss Minetti breaking up bits of wood and we all had a fire on the street at three o'clock in the morning and anywhere wow. else in the world past police would tell you to quit it wouldn't they but again it's like oh yes these people are having a fire on the street it's perfectly normal yeah um so i started the show there and then we went to avignon festival and of course because it was avignon it was france you know home of ballet there's me doing my ballet on the street and you know oh wonderful and then and was uh, your show in english was it silent what what else did you have in it in Belgium, but when I got to France, I did it in French because I'd learned French at school. Okay. So Belgium, you said it was in English? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that was why I think I'd like real beginner's luck in the beginning. You know, I was making massive hats and I was like, God, this is brilliant. Why did yeah. I bother all that education? Yeah. Uh, and then we, I, I didn't do that many shows because David had a tour schedule. So I sort of traveled around with him when I was his roadie. And then we, at the end of the summer, we went back to Australia because that's where he was living at the time. Wow. And when my busking properly started and I was like, oh, my God. That Are we there on this? What, what, that was, like, what, 96? Uh, this was still 95. It was still 95. So you did, got, a, you did a tour of Europe and then you went to Australia. Yeah, and so I like I did a few street shows. I did Ghent Festival, and I did um, Avignon. I think maybe Heidelberg, uh, maybe Munich. But I did very few shows. But but I had a warped idea of what you know street theatre was. I think, and because I came from a sort of theatre dance background as well, I was like, oh, you can do anything on the street, you know. It's like, you could. well, yes, but sort until of. I got to. Until I got to Australia. Oh, yeah, I know. That's different. It's a whole different animal. <laughs> oh, my God. When I got to Australia, I was like, crash and burn. Because, you know, I suddenly it was like proper busking, going to the pitch in Melbourne. And then, you know, people just like, you know, the mm -hmm. weather in Australia, midsummer, boiling hot. And then just, I guess, you know, British culture is not Australian culture you know like British culture is not American culture it's not Canadian culture and and it took me a long time to kind of get used to being in Australia and also like when I got there I guess I found it quite sort of hard and you know so turning up at the pitch and there were you know who was there who was there Richie Rich Lucky Rich yeah yeah uh Anthony Living Space mm -hmm. so um I don't know if Sam Fish was there at the time, but, you know, so it's so kind of like a, um, a a lot of big generic shows as well. And so, you know, there's me with my ballet shoes and like, yeah. like six foot giraffe unicycle. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody wanted to watch me. Yeah, of course. And um, 
David kept saying to me, like, you know, why don't you use they, they, you know, use this, use this, use this skill, use this skill. And I was like, no, I don't want to use that. Like, everybody's doing that. And he's like, yeah, everybody's doing it because it works. Yeah. And I'm so resistant. I mean, looking back, I hope I never offended any, anybody because I think I was probably a bright little snob up my own ass. Really? You know, because. Well, because I, you know, because I had a master's degree in theater. I mean, you right. know. Right, you're like, Why, what am I doing this? I, I got to well, juggle things. Exactly. I was like, why don't you like ballet and you don't like Shakespeare? <laughs> what the hell is wrong with you people? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, it, you know, in looking back, it did a massive favor because whatever I've done since then, it's really taught me how to... I think, you know, you see... Because I do more cabaret now, but I think, you know, when you move from doing street theatre, you do cabaret theatre, whatever else you do, you you can really tell who's had a bit of a grounding in doing stuff on the street because that that immediacy you get with the street and being able to keep a crowd, being able to talk to people and not talk at people. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. And sound real. Yeah, sound, sound real and to be genuine with people. It really, yeah. Even though, like, always done characters and I still play characters now <laughs> when there's not a pandemic on and I get to actually do some shows yeah. but uh, it, 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 yeah I think it really yeah I'm learning like timing and learning how to, 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 to keep um, to keep a crowd and keep people engaged and also the edge that the street gives you because I think now my performance style will change I'm probably going to stop licking people Um yeah, I would imagine that's um, got to get cut out. You're kind of climbing, using a lot of audience partici- participation and climbing on people and getting really, like, not in a sexual way. I mean, I guess well, I really yeah. like to people. That will probably change now because, I mean, it just, I don't I know. know. Yeah. I mean, it it's, is. It, it's hard to know what's going to feel right for everybody. It's tragic. But in, term, in terms of what I was doing with cabaret stuff, pre-pandemic it, it really be the stuff that I did on the street that I always did from the very beginning which was literally putting my bum in someone's face and not for the sexual thing for the thing of like I've push pushing the envelope you know really like just to see you know do, doing the things that weren't acceptable and especially doing things that weren't acceptable as a woman yeah of course that's what's that was what was great about your energy is that you have that kind of it's almost like attack mode you know, it's like, like like what you're saying, like you did, like the early shows you did in Glastonbury, where you're playing with this idea of, you know, egging people on and, you know, and you're, you're, you're just, you're very energetic and physical. And I think that's, what's really cool is like, you're a smaller woman, you're not a big giant, but you are, you're, you're, you project a giant person, you know what I mean? Like, your characters are really strong and really outgoing and forceful but also playful and lovable. I think I I made a lot of mistakes when I first started performing. You know, like I, you know, um, Jonathan Kay, the British clown, like he says, always put the audience back where you found them at the beginning. Mm. And I think when I first started off, I was definitely guilty of not returning people to their natural emotional <laughs> habitat. And I really hate to think of the people that I may have scarred. I still feel guilty about it because I used to, so with the the Fire on the Nile show, you know, I used to get a guy out to be my love interest, to be 
Anthony to my Cleopatra. And the whole thing was, <laughs> David was so good with all this stuff because he was like, push the envelope. I'd be like, push it if you're going to do it. And the whole thing was, was, can I get the man out of his trousers, down to his underpants and into ballet tights and a tutu? And for me, oh my God, I can't, I look back now and just think I, I was so much more focused on that than the money or anything else. Uh -huh. And I think because of my insistence on that, that I may have really pushed it too far in the mm. beginning because I was so green and just not sensitive enough with people. And I did. And a lot of the time, though, I think I upset men's partners, girlfriends and wives. I think oh, I wags more than that because sometimes I'd see the guys walking away with the wife going the thing with the tights as well though is it backfired on me a couple of times I was doing a show really early in the morning in Australia because the tapes you know, the college is there they'd have like freshers weeks and the kids would be pissed at 8 o'clock in the morning so oh, I went geez. one day to do like a you know a welcome week show and so I get the guy out and everyone's having a really good time and I say to him, okay, you know, take your, your, your board shorts on, take your shorts off and put these on. And he went, oh, I love, I can't do it. And I was like, don't take them off. Just, he's like, I don't have any underpants on. I don't, <laughs> sorry, as Shay was like, I don't have any undercrackers on. <laughs> and I went, shit. And everybody started laughing and it was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> always stand in front of the guy you know and he'd stand behind me to put the <laughs> so he's standing behind me and he literally takes his pants off he takes his sports shorts off wow. and he's naked and I've got a big tutu on so I flap up the tutu and I don't mean anything funny by it but of course I flap up the tutu and he's kind of holding on to my waist wait <laughs> And he was a big, like, he was like a rugger guy, you know, he was a great big guy, so he pulled the tights on, and I heard him rip as they go up, and he just about manages to put, pull them up, and he puts the tutu on, and then we do this part of their thing, where we're running and jumping, um, but every time he jumps, the tutu flaps up, and <laughs> he's got this giant butt crack shot of, uh, yeah, so that was, that was one of the better misfiring incidents, but yeah. Definitely yeah. over the years I learned how to be more um more gentle with the audience and also the art of kind of saying no and the art of releasing people that if I saw somebody that they were really having a bad time, Just I would them send go. them back. Yeah. yeah. So those early those early days in, in um in Melbourne, how how much did your show change? Because you clearly went from being in Europe to this really hard pitch in Melbourne and you've you have to do something different right how long did you resist trying I to adjust think, your show I think it took me about two years you wow. know yeah I was really resistant and I you know I I suffered because of that because obviously like on the in Europe you know especially if you do more festivals and you're on the European circuit the festival circuit you know you've got people you know juggling balls with white face and you yeah. know just it's all artistic. yeah that, 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 and you don't you know that you you don't need that big rah 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 here's my prop yeah 
So, yeah, I was really resistant. And then slowly, like, I'd put in some hat lines that David would suggest and, you know, or I'd put in a couple of stock jokes. And then the people would be laughing and clapping and I'd be like, I'd be angry at the audience. (laughs) Because they're laughing at things that are funny. Yeah, but back then, for me at the time, I was like, how can you laugh at this joke? You've just had five other performers do it. And then I got this like real kind of contempt on for the audience. And God, I look back and I really kind of like hate myself. But I think it was all to more about me being conflicted because, you know, I grew up like in a, as, as a working class kid growing up and then I went to university. So I'd never felt like I fitted in at home. I never felt like I fitted in at university. It wasn't until I discovered street performing that I really felt I'd found my tribe mm-hmm. because we're such a band of miscreants and misfits from yeah, all over. Everywhere. Yeah. And so I know, and, and you know, your class, gender, race, uh, even beliefs to a certain degree don't, don't matter in our crew. It's just like, you are who you are. Yeah. You just come along. Don't be a dick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> pretty much. Fine. So I think that was, you know, it was me, yeah, hating on the audience for a bit. And it really took me a, oh, God, a, a, God, maybe a long time not to be such a, I don't know, I want to say bitch. I wasn't a bitch, but I was just so conflicted and not wanting to, yeah, I, I suppose I saw it art and I didn't feel like, I don't want to compromise myself as an artist. I think that's God, What's that? I was so up my own butt. Yeah, but I think that's fair. <clears throat> like not not just following the, like uh, Silver always calls it like paint by number, not just following the exact formula, like I think is good. It's just now there's such a tight formula that it's hard to create a show outside of that if you're just doing pure street. Because also people's attention spans are so short, and especially Australia back then would be the same. They're They're just... You know, like you said, arms crossed. Like, what are you going to do? What can you show me? So to try to be artistic in that setting is really challenging. And I, you know, I wonder, because I've not busked for a long time. I've done a few festivals where it's been kind of like hat passing. And, yeah. and then you're like, oh, this is a little bit like street used to be. But it's not really, is it? Because people are coming in for the festival. They're there. And it's usually quite places and arty communities. But I do wonder now, like, for, if you're busking, if the whole kind of like, you know, Instagram, the, you know, the TikTok culture, how that is affecting street shows, because you're right, everybody's got this like. Oh, yeah, they got the phone in their hand. They, was it, what was that last part? The three second fish fishbowl memory, you know. Yeah. They're gone. And they, they, have, they have the device in their hand. They sometimes watch the show through the device because they're recording you. Yeah, it's very different. But um, why do people do that? You just go like, what do they do? They go home and go like, like you know. Are they ever going to watch it again? Yeah, I mean, like you know, is it like the modern day equivalent of people taking their holiday snaps and putting them on the projector, and so they invite their neighbours around to see this really cool street performer? I think what they do <clears throat> is they they record it so they can post it and say that they were there watching this person do this thing. Yeah. <clears throat> but going back to um. Again, do they? Yeah, going back to um to your Melbourne days, you said you were there. F- uh, how, how, you said it took you two years. So you, were you just in Melbourne the whole time, or did you go on tour with David when in the summers? We we, we toured around. Um, we do you know the festival circuit in Australia, which as you know is actually not not that big. It's kind of like yeah. between 
five cities and you know we'd go to Sydney and I have to say busking in Sydney was totally different to busking in Melbourne how so oh god darling harbour quite oh yeah it's pretty harsh yeah and it was kind of like was it was lucky in um Melbourne wasn't it and it was like forest in uh Sydney (laughs) and I was terrified of lucky and I was terrified (laughs) of forest yeah and uh yeah did they welcome you though at all did you feel welcome on the pitch um yes and no i think they you know there weren't that many girls around who else was um, around that was... Uh, well tomorrow um, in terms of i uh, know she was based in sydney and uh yeah, like in Melbourne, sometimes I would often be the only woman on the pitch. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, then, like, you know, which book was great when Sharon came down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and if I went to a festival, there'd, there'd be more women. But, you know, often there wouldn't, yeah, there really wouldn't be that, that many w- women around. Um, but I never really felt like that was necessarily the problem. I always felt it was more kind of like the the style of show that I was doing. Yeah. And that, you know, because I wasn't, I didn't have like a big trick, even though I think, you know, doing the splits on the shoulders of two complete strangers is pretty reasonable yeah. as a trick. And yeah. certainly dangerous. I think people just, you know, didn't quite realise the level of risk involved in it. But, um, yeah, no, I sort of, Felt, yeah, felt welcome. But then, you know, as you know as well, like with the, the busking, it's dependent on how many people are on the pitch. Mm-hmm. It's, it's always, it's, it's weird, isn't it? It's always, it is like a family because there is a degree of camaraderie, but there also is kind of like friction and fighting. And, you know, I mean, I don't know what it's like now, but there would always be some drama. Yeah, so, not everyone gets along with everybody some disagreement and performers running over their time and then there'd be like other things with the you know city regulations and infringements and pitches getting moved or pitches getting smaller i mean i remember you know i remember a lot of bureaucracy around it and actually that's something that's followed me to london as well you know that 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 thing between the public and the private space i think what most citizens don't realize is how much of their city is actually private land yeah like here in london the city of london so much land is privately managed mm-hmm. and what, what you think of as a public thoroughfare is not public at all it's it's quite worrying really yeah did you did you ever work covent garden i have never worked covent garden can you believe that yeah not that surprised i mean if you were in australia for a while and touring Europe well I've been back um in London since when did I come back late 2008 I finally came back to the UK properly and settled here but by that time I'd started doing kind of cabaret stuff as well and yeah I got to be honest I just never had the balls to do Covent Garden you never had the balls to do the Covent Garden after you worked Sydney and Melbourne yeah it's it's because your home pitch probably right it feels different yeah maybe that and also like I, I mean it's hard work isn't it street performing like as well and if you if you if you've got to hang around at the pitch all day and go to the draw it's 
it's, it, it's a job. I think it's what the, the you know general public don't understand is that busking and street performing is a, is a it's an art. It's a job. It's a skill. It's mm-hmm. it's like any other small business, and uh, you've got to put the time in. And so for working Covent Garden, that means you know, going to the drawer and hanging around and yeah, maybe I'm just lazy. <laughs> no, not at all. So, so you're in, you you're in Melbourne for how how long did you stay in Melbourne? We lived there for well, David had been there for a long time before I arrived, and we were there for sort of like eight to ten years, and then we started to spend more and more time in Europe, um, and and sort of like transitioned back, and there was kind of like sort of a two or three year period where I didn't really live anywhere. And um, David and I went our separate ways. And then, you know, I just was kind of like, I was sort of stateless, just mooching around. And eventually I decided to come back to the UK mm-hmm. after that. So in that time of uh, when you're traveling around and uh, were you mostly doing street or when did you start doing festivals? What was it? What was the the point of like street, street, street and then street theater festivals and then off to Cabaret? I'd always done... Um, festivals because when I met David he was already doing festivals and he he, you know won quite a fair few awards and stuff so he was always doing a mixture of street and festivals and then the work that we did in Australia we did educational theatre we did a tour of a children's show uh we used to David had set up this brilliant facility called the Rumpus Room it was a great did you ever come to uh no this is big old beautiful red brick warehouse and David turned it into this incredible live workspace and um, there was the juggle art, the juggle shop was next door. It used to be a weekly juggle jam on a Wednesday night and other people would teach classes there and um, we'd put on cabarets and stuff so it had already started back then and then I, David and I did a show together called Sid and Lena, this uh, washed up showbiz couple. It was like a kind of cheesy Vegas pastiche. Yeah, that's we when started I, to- I think I met, that's when I met you. It was in Adelaide, I think 2004. So I, and I think I met you guys yeah. there and I did a spot in that show. Oh, yes, you did. Was that the, oh, uh, is this so- it, white for it, white for it? Yeah, yeah. David had like kind of 1970s porno yeah. and he had a fake hairy chest and all the costumes are really kind of like tragic-y goldy glitter yeah um so we did that so my show and i i, I even though i bust it I, I never had the confidence to push my show as a solo performer i just didn't have any confidence in myself and so david and i started doing the show together so we focused more on that mm-hmm. and then when we when we split, <laughs> it's like, oh my god, the ground's coming up at me because you know David and I had, had this partnership where you know we 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 sort of had our separate jobs, and so I once I was out on my own, I didn't know how to edit video. I had a rough idea of how to use Photoshop, and I sort of had component parts bits of the kit but I didn't have the whole kit and so that to learn how to put it all together and to really like push myself and I got a few festival bookings and then that snowballed and then then there were a few really good years where I was working I started to work a lot in Spain and uh, I worked from the Spanish season starts really early so I was kind of working from February right through to October November and only festivals in Spain only festivals and in, and in spanish you did the show 
Yeah, I learned the whole show by just by rote in Spanish. Wow. Um, so by then I'd started to do um, a different show called a Femme Exposé. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was about this Russian character who gets, well, Soviet circus performer who gets shot out of the cannon the day that Chernobyl, the, the reactor explodes. And so she loses all of her uh, comrades in the accident and she stands naked in your city and she's you know she's lost her lover she's lost the circus but the show must go on and so I used to start it out as a bag lady with these like awful teeth and really decrepit and bless my dad he came to see me do that show and I went up to him and I looked at him and I was like I, I used to have a plastic bag full of blow up uh, air you know neck pillows uh-huh. so a big sound but it didn't hurt when you and I looked at my dad and I, I whacked him and I was like whack 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 and he was looking at me like she's this mad woman it's this this mad woman's hitting me <laughs> he didn't recognize me and he said to me afterwards like I was like oh just my luck I couldn't believe it I thought you know is this mad old bag gonna ruin her show <laughs> my dad back though because my dad used to be Santa Claus at my school and I didn't I didn't recognize him and then the third year he did it, I looked at his eyes and I was like, that's oh, my... no. Now I found out that Santa Claus doesn't exist. Yeah. By the way, Santa Claus does exist. I'm just saying that. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I started, I, I, I started doing that show. So I just, you know, I would write the script, translate the script, get, get friends to help and um, learn the whole show in Spanish and would do the whole show. And then at the end, people would be coming up, speaking to me in Spanish and I'd be like, see. Sí. See, sí. because I have no idea what they were saying. I just be, oh, see, sí, see, sí, claro, claro, claro. And then I, I did learn to speak Spanish badly eventually. I mean, I had a bit of a head start because I speak French. Yeah. But uh, yeah, and I know. So I went to Brazil. So I translated the whole thing into Brasileiro. Um, when I went to did Japan, you, when you were when you were doing this Russian character in Spain, speaking Spanish, were you doing it with a Russian accent? <laughs> like. <laughs> I wouldn't even know I, how to even approach uh, that. No, I tried. I don't. I don't think I did. I, I think like, oh god. I think it was just me doing do, trying to speak Spanish. I think, yeah. I can't remember if I tried or not. Yeah. That, no, that was that was wasn't that the show you did in Stockholm? We did uh, the festival with Torsten. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember yeah. the bag. I remember the the you were Russian. Your Russian character. Well, this was the thing as well. So, you know, because obviously, like, I start out as this, like, you know, the teeth were, do you yeah. the, the teeth were horrendous, like, proper, like, you know, tombstone teeth. And so this was where I learned to compromise, but also, in a way, it upset me that I sometimes would start off as the bag lady and people, you know, would be like, you know, because they're looking at me and I thought, God, you know, you have feel sorry for homeless people thinking this is the kind of crap they get off the people every yeah. day you know, i can take this costume off they can't but sometimes it would give me a hard start to the show because the whole thing was like i'd go inside this like sort of changing room thing and i'd come out as my former self yeah skimpy tight little red you know soviet inspired outfit and being the bag lady it could make the start of the show, depending where I was, it could make the start of the show really hard. Hmm. 
So sometimes, you know, I'd, I'd learn to compromise. Sometimes I was like, oh, God, I didn't need this hard start to this show. So sometimes I would start in the hot pants and, the, you know, the little, the, the little guitar because it made the start of the show a lot easier. So yeah. I'm a little bit horrified that I did that because he is obviously playing into a stereotype and, a you know, a hook to get people to watch the show is like, look yeah. at my butt. Yeah, but I didn't. I didn't make the world, but I, you know, now I work in do a lot, of, a lot of cabaret and burlesque nights, and so the one thing I've never had a problem with is, you know, like sexuality on display, or, or you know, wearing a tight costume, or people admiring your physique. Yeah, you know, there, there is definitely an argument to say, oh well, it's a cheap, cheap way to. Uh, Tits and ass is a cheap way to to get people in, but I'm like, well, but then it depends what you do with that thing. Because exactly. I, when I when I did my academic work, I did a lot of stuff on carnival theory, and carnival theory is the idea that you turn the world upside down. And this is why I've always loved street theatre and festivals because it's a liminal space where you know, the the accepted mores and behaviour of society. This is why people love street performers. Because we don't comply to those ordinary. Doesn't mean we're kind of like criminal anarchists, but there is. Yeah. Of, even in the nicest, sweetest show, I think there's still that degree of anarchy of being outside the normal world of society. So for me, the carnival theory is, you know, and I did write my master's dissertation on this: the idea of turning the world upside down and uh, doing what is not expected. So. During, this is a big segue, but during the medieval period, during the carnival times, so sort of like you know, the, the the priest would run around the the, the church naked, throwing really? shit, and the you know there was the thing of like king for a day, so the pauper could be the king for a day, and it was literally you know the the norms of society, and I guess if you look at it, it was a way of it's like a safety valve on society, you know, or let the let let the poor people have some fun, yeah. and then we'll put them back on them if you want to look at it from a materialist Marxist dialectic god this has got boring isn't it <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> I never heard of this carnival theory thing though well yeah th there's and um, if in the churches of medieval churches in the UK there were carvings profane carvings underneath the the church uh, the, the seats they were called the misery cords of um women fellating the devil and all sorts of stuff wow yeah, right. So, and and there was the idea of like the woman being on top. So, obviously, in the medieval period, you know, women have no rights, mm -hmm. and so woman being on top literally was banned. So, for me, in my own little way, it sounds really egotistical, but it's been about me literally, you know, standing on two guys. It's been about me being on top, and. I hope that if I had left any kind of legacy whatsoever or made any kind of change was to show little girls that they could be strong, that yeah. they could wear whatever they wanted to wear and not be be touched or groped, uh, you know. Yeah. That can, you, you can be strong. Well, I hope you can be strong, you could be sexy or you could be womanly you could be funny you could be intelligent it wasn't it wasn't one thing or the other mm -hmm. and i you know i've got i've had some flack because of it over the what years what do you mean 
But this, I so when I first started performing, actually, in, I don't know if this was the first year I was performing in Ghent, some bloke carried me out of the circle, literally, you know. So I'd climbed on him, yeah, yeah. Was to and he, carry, he walked off down the street with me. <laughs> I, my heart started to thump because I was terrified, That's, and I, and then I didn't do anything. No, they were like, oh, 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 it's so funny. It's so that funny. was part of the show. Not, yeah, and I, I, and he, I, and then I started to kick him, and then I like, I got my thighs, and I was clapping my thighs around his ears, like whacking his head to make him let me go, and eventually Jeez. he let me down. I was scared, and then another time, a, a man said to me, "Oh, you know, why are you humiliating on your, yourself on the street? My friend's got a lap dancing club. I can get you a job if you want." Which was wrong on so many levels, because actually, you know, I don't have a problem with lap dancing clubs. I don't have a problem with sex work, you know, but but it's, that was clearly not what I was doing. Yeah, so. yeah, and also his intention was putting you down, essentially. Yeah, and then, you know, like, you, you know, you could get flack from other women or, you know, you you have to make a choice. You can't be sexy and funny. It's like, well, can't, can't, you, be, can't you be both? And not that sexy because I never thought of myself as being sexy I thought I was you know it wasn't pornographic it was pornographic it was like corny jokes and you know bad puns and yeah and when I started to do uh cabaret and burlesque it's like then it's more uh, you know the opposite to street theater it's more women than yeah. men it's completely so world but you know, I've had, I've had, I've had people coming, you know, like we all do. People coming up at the end of the show and saying thank you. And actually, I've had a few mums coming up with their daughters, bringing their daughter. It always amazes me because then I'm feel like I'm like, oh my god, was this, you know, is this okay? Is this family content? But people bringing their daughters up and and women bringing their daughters up. And the one thing that I really enjoy when I'm doing a show, and this is again one thing I learned to get better at, was that when I brought a man up on stage was to look at his partner and to to always be like, you know, this is this is a joke between you and me, isn't it? We've got yeah. him up and isn't it funny that we're having a little thing between us about him? So I yeah. learned to be much more inclusive and much more uh, to build a rapport with the female members of the audience. And yeah, I think those, those little things, I think, is what you discover from doing all the shows, you're like, oh, if I just do this, one little look, yeah. this is going to make nothing, it will make it so much less awkward at the end. Yeah, and it's surprising, isn't it, in that kind of context of the street where the energy can be quite sort of dissipated. It's, it's quite interesting that you can... Focus. Yeah, and another wonderful thing that David taught me was, you know, he wrote a book, The Pavement Stage, and actually, you know, if anybody wants to learn how to do street performing, though, there's a whole section in that book that is like Street Performing 101. Yeah. Anyway, there's a, in, in the section of the book, you know, it is a, it is a really good how-to, how to make a street show, the, the nuts and bolts of it, and he had this thing that he called anchoring. I don't know what anybody else calls them or what you call them, but just that thing of... Um, finding four or five people in the audience from the very beginning and you they're the ones that you bring in and yeah. they're the ones you focus on and you try and learn their name or you keep making a joke that you bounce off of them and from that everybody else comes along because they want to mm -hmm. join the party and they want to be part of that feeling and that is something that I've used to this day and still use and it's been you know for doing cabaret and theatre 
For everything, yeah. For anything where it's live and there's no fourth wall. But actually, I, I, I think even, you know, I think a lot of you know, more traditional stage performers could really benefit from the knowledge of street performers because being able to look out beyond the fourth wall and actually catch somebody's eye and make them feel drawn in. Because otherwise, if you're not going to do that, why just do television? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I definitely, I, I start on stage and I definitely... Uh, once I started street performing, everything I did became stronger. Like you were saying earlier, your background in drama was a good start, but once you started street performing, you really learned the craft in a different way. And I think that I've heard that from other performers that, like Sharon we're talking about, I remember she was saying years ago, because when she had started doing stand-up, is that she's like, stand-up is easy compared to street performing. She goes, I'm a good stand-up because I was a I'm a good street performer because I was a street performer or am a street performer. And she talks about these comics playing down street performing. She goes, it is so much harder to do a show on the street than it is to be in this club and stand on the stage. And I think that, that a lot of people know that, you know, if you if you've put your time in on the street, it really helps you develop in a different way, different muscles as a performer. Yeah, I just, I, I really, when you go to Edinburgh, you can really see it, can't you? Because you've got all these drama students or people doing shows indoors that say, yeah. oh, let's just go on the street. I mean, all you have to do is set up and, and then it's like, oh, my God, it's painful. so painful. Why yeah. are you shouting at these people? Why are you running after that person when they clearly don't want to watch? You do realise that's bordering on assault. <laughs> I know it's yeah. horrible. The whole, all those drama students standing there, their poses, holding the flyer out in a frozen pose. I'm like, why is that the thing every year? Every year, there's some group of kids standing frozen on the high street with a flyer in their hand, or they're laying down on the pavement, holding their arm up with a flyer. This doesn't work. No one's going to go to your show. It's insane. Uh, uh left them and there's definitely, yeah. <laughs> there's definitely uh there's, there's room for that <laughs> yeah but i did want to know how many different characters you have performed on or how many different shows have you've created for the on the street uh okay so there was madam shushu in fire on the moon madam shushu and then there was lane alarmate here at the sid and lana show all the glitters um, and then there was Katinka from, uh, from the circus. And, uh, then there was Angel from my butter bing, my butterfly show. Uh, and then briefly I did a show called Vive l'amour, which I did in a French accent. And, um, then the last street show that I put together was about Brexit. <laughs> and I started that show dressed as an English gent with a little moustache and a bowler hat. Um, and it was called Full Britannia. And I, start, I started with that. And um, then I would I served tea on my head, tea for two and do for tea. And it was all very British. Oh, my God. You know, I did that show in... Uh, in Belfast at the Festival of Falls there. Oh, great. I've been to Northern Ireland and nobody ever told me what it would mean to whip out the Union Jack in Northern Ireland. Ooh, yeah. No one told you? <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, I was yeah. lucky to get out there alive. But I have to say, my God, what an incredible festival, an amazing 
um, people. And so in that show as well, that the, uh, the national anthem comes on and that morphs into the Sex Pistols version. And then I do my... There's always a little bit of striptease in my show. Oh, God, I don't care, whatever. <laughs> I and so I, I stripped down to um, like a, uh, an acid wash Union Jack T-shirt and I put on this like mohawk wig. And uh, and then when in Belfast, when I did the punk thing, people were like, yeah, because I didn't know this either, but punk had been um, a massive thing in Northern Ireland, you know, during the Troubles. It sure. really united the, the Catholic and the Protestant youngsters. And it had been really, so yeah, all's well that ends well. Um, so yeah, and uh, then I do this. I do this hula hoop routine to the Sex Pistols, uh, and <laughs> I don't think I'll ever be doing this routine again because I was spitting. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know what else I didn't realise? I thought everybody knew punk. So when I did this in Northern Ireland, people were cracking up because it's God save the Queen, <laughs> and I never realised how, how dehydrating it would be to spit. Constantly. <laughs> Constantly, yeah. So I was like spitting, 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 gobbing, gobbing, gobbing. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes spitting on myself. I'll obviously, <laughs> this again, it's not not COVID safe at no. all. Uh, uh, but I, I did the show in Holland and apparently, like, in small Dutch villages, punk and small Belgian villages, punk didn't really make <laughs> Wow. She just got blank stares. It's for like, is this a is this an English thing? Is this a, she's spitting? It is horrible. It is, yeah, it is, yeah. It's funny when you that, find those moments when you're in another country. And you're like, oh, this doesn't work here at all. Oops. Yeah, right. But yeah, this this didn't get. Yeah, like forty towers in Germany. <clears throat> um, uh, yeah. So for Britannia, that was the last thing that I put together for the street. So um, what? So when do you think the last time you've done like a street festival was? Um, so the last time I did a street festival, uh, was 2000, uh, what, hat passing or, I did a, I did some street shows in 2019, so oh. I did a contract, well, I did a long contract in, um, Copenhagen from August 2019 until the start of the pandemic. And wow. then I got um, Recently? I thought it's been a while since you've done anything. I thought you were, like you were saying, cabaret. Um, and so that was, that was, that was a, an indoor, indoor, like a cabaret show. Oh, okay. um, but before that, I'd, I'd, I'd done a few, done a few festivals, kind of but sort of smaller things, you know, a couple of sort of street gigs that I, yeah. you know, was more like local community things. Mm -hmm. um, actually, I did a really nice festival. Oh, God, Ash, I want to say Ashford, somewhere in the Midlands north of England. Ashburn? For, yeah, Ashburn, yeah. Yeah, so that was, and that was... Uh, is that Bill yeah. Ferguson's festival? Yeah, Bill. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that that was street. That was like you know, did we park? Can't remember if we passed the hat or not. <gasps> That's terrible that I can't remember if we passed the hat, isn't it? <laughs> but yeah, that was so. That's that's probably the last time I did clo anything close to a street festival. And so then, eighteen months. Yeah. Do you miss having those festivals or do you just enjoy being doing cabaret more? 
Um, I really liked doing a mix of it. And mm -hmm. obviously, I really liked pre-Brexit was being yeah. able to nip over to Europe. And sometimes I, would, sometimes I would go and do a festival in Holland and I'd go there and back in a day wow. to get the first flight in the morning. And then I'd get on a train. Oh, my God. Once I fell asleep on a train and woke up somewhere in the north of Holland because I was so, so tired and I had to get back <laughs> the other direction. Um, I'd do like three street shows and then get back on the plane that night and come back to London. Wow. Or I'd stay overnight and then come back the next morning. So I, I was doing more and more cabaret and less and less street, but I was still there was still a, a few times in the year where I would go and do it. And um, I, I always loved it because it it i don't know i think it keeps you keeps you fresh i think it's never good to do just one thing like just yeah. to do street performing just to do cabaret just to do theater i think having a, a a mix of those things keeps you fresh it keeps it interesting yeah but and then it, each one informs the other too you can learn something from each one that you can bring back to it like if you've done cabaret for you know a long contract and you have a street festival you might bring something in from what you've learned in that long contract in the cabaret that might work in the show as well. Yeah, but it's obviously like a, a changing down of gears as well because, yeah. you know, I never swear when I do street shows. And <laughs> if you're doing, if you're on stage at 11 o'clock at night in London. <laughs> yeah, you're letting loose. Yeah, it would be like, oh, you know, take it, take it down a notch, take it down a notch. Mm -hmm. um, and I, like it's it's weird as well though because in Europe you know you can pretty much do what you want on the street. I, I never I don't ever remember a festival organizer coming and telling me off. You know in Europe or saying like don't swear or don't do that or can you wear something else? Yeah, or you've got a complaint. In the UK, I mean it's not been all the time, but in the UK and Australia, I certainly got more. I hate to say it. But there's definitely a sort of more ang more Anglo-Saxon things are. I think it's this idea of family friendly, and I get mm -hmm. that, and I respect that. But I um I did this show briefly for a couple of seasons called Butterfly, and it was based on Madame Butterfly. But it was like this 1980s New York. It was you know the soundtrack was all Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, mm -hmm. and uh, so I sort of transposed the story into 1980s. Well, what I imagine 1980s New York culture was, because I'm not quite that old. And I've never been to New York. Can you believe it? I've never been to Can't New York. Can't believe it. I, um, so I, the, sh the show was like, there, there was a poll. Remember when everyone had a, had a poll show? So I decided to jump on the bandwagon and I had a poll show, but it was a poll dance that I was doing. But it was such a burlesque, such a buffoonery of pole dancing so i'd made these massive cartoon boobs made out of foam with little triangles over the nipples and you know my classic squeaker gag the squeakers in the nipples and it was so not sexy so i was in this like regional town in um middle of england like in middle earth and i was doing <laughs> And so there I am doing the pole dance. And then I start getting flack off the bloody security guards. And, and I'm like, oh, excuse me, who made you the critic of the times? Like, yeah. like, who's, like, who are you? And then someone from the festival said, look, we've had some complaints. And I was like, well, what, is it about the pole dancing? And they were like, 
So I have to, I should mention that at the end of the show, like Madame Butterfly, she's, you know, she gets pregnant. So I sang, I will always love you from the top of the pole while giving birth to a baby. On a bit of a... <laughs> How did you manage that? So like, uh, there's me, you know, with the big, like, the, 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 you know, a kimono on and, and, and there's the volunteers holding it. And there's the poor bloke that, you know, is my love interest. He's sitting at the bottom of the pole looking at me and I'm singing, I will always love you. And, and then just like I'd, I'd, I'd release the baby and the baby was bouncing on this elastic. And so apparently there were some complaints and I was like, well, what's it about? Is it about the baby? No, not really about the baby. It's about the pole dance. <laughs> No. Oh, well, yeah, but no. It's about, it's a, what is it about? And it turned out it was, I don't know if it was one person or several people had complained about the boobs. Uh-huh. And I was like, so let me get this straight. If I take the comedy boobs off, I can still do the show. I can still do the pole dance. Yeah, that's fine. So you'd rather see the outline of my real boobs and the massive, Simpsons comedy boobs, which are obviously fake cartoons that are parodying the whole sexual thing. <laughs> yeah, basically. And I said, no, I'm not doing... So I was doing it for a festival organiser who was working with the town's body. So this guy was like, you know, he's got his own arts organisation and they're very liberal on whatever, yeah. but he had to work in the constraints of the town. So it ended up being this big debate and I said, I'm sorry... I, I won't, I'm not doing this, sh- I'm not pole dancing. I am not pole dancing for your pleasure because that, without the boobs, without yeah. the, the tuning it, I'm doing a pole dance. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I think it's worse for these little girls to to watch me pole dancing than to watch me, you know, yeah, a clown. Yeah. yeah, clown pole dancing. So the guy was like, the festival organiser was totally cool about it. I said, I'll tell you what I will do. I'll do a whole show about offending people so i just improvised an hour-long show about have i offended you have i offended you and i kept stopping and asking people if if i'd offended them and actually i mean for me it was brilliant because it was one of rare chances when you actually get to really oh god it sounds so up its own ass but when you get to really see you know culture and and morals and values in action ask like if you're offended, why? You know, what, what offends you? And what, offends and what was you? the audience reaction to that? Were they... Well, I think all of the people who'd been remotely offended had, had gone home. I <laughs> scared them off. So yeah. people were offended. But it, what it, it, it meant was that I had this constant... Uh, basically, it was an hour-long conversation with, with the audience about mm-hmm. being offended. Interesting. So I kind of I wish I'd recorded it now because it would have been a whole, you know... It would have been a whole show. Yeah. No, because I'm kind of, you know, I'm, I'm with with this thing about offending people. You know, it's like the the example of the rape joke. I'm, I'm, uh, and now with cancel culture, I'm I'm really between the two fences about it because I do believe in freedom of speech, but I also, you know, don't believe in simply offending people for offences' sake. Yeah, of course. Well, I mean, if you're, if you're creating a show, you're not creating a show thinking you're going to offend people because you're creating something that you think is art and then you find out if you've offended them when Unless you get a complaint. And that's why. Unless you're dirty Fred. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then you do that on purpose. Yeah, then you don't give a shit. Yeah. Uh, or living space, right, as well, that, you know, because living space always loved to push the envelope, didn't they? Yeah. And 
for me, like and Stompy and Chris Lynham, you yeah. know, for me, those were always the performers that I gravitated towards. And and but then I've also seen that stuff get out of control. Do you remember the show that I was doing in Edinburgh, the Office Party? Oh right? yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. So we, that was like a kind of bacchanalian, you know, repeat the, by the end of the show, no one knew who the performers were and who were the public. And that was the way it was supposed to be because it was literally the whole carnival. It was supposed to feel but, like an office party. Yeah, but it was supposed to be that thing about, you know, what happens when we take, when we add in all this alcohol and take away social controls. And it was, I mean, as an experiment, it worked brilliantly. But, you know, I, there, there was this thing in there where we were basically, the audience were encouraged to get undressed and there was a lot of egging people on and you know the more naked people got the more people were clapping and cheering and whooping but I spent a lot of time in character as Mandy from accounts with with girls in the toilets who'd you know encouraged too much alcohol too much peer pressure had gone too far mm -hmm. their backs out and then regretted it and you know I was like oh babe fine you know I, I was trying to soothe them while staying in character like if I had knockers like you i'd be getting them out i'd be getting them out in the bakery i'd be doing it all the time <laughs> um so yeah it is I do, I do i do believe you can you can go too far well it's like love island i mean i don't watch these shows but uh, was it love island where some of the contestants ended up committing suicide because it all oh, really so yeah so i'm and i'm definitely more mindful than i was of not, yeah not upsetting people just for the sake of pushing the envelope yeah. Um, do you have any other crazy stories you can think of of, of a, a street show that went either really good or really bad? Oh my God, I've got lots of stories. Um, there was one time, one time in Bandcamp, um, I think I was <laughs> in Luxembourg or, or Germany, maybe, I'm not sure maybe on the border with that, that weird slither that you're not quite sure if it's Belgium or Germany. And I climbed on this bloke to do, you know, and I was doing the whole classic gag of pulling someone's hair and pretending to, you know. And then, I, so I'm literally, you know, stood on the guys on the shoulders balancing and I pulled and I heard a... <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was like, shit. <laughs> Toupee. And he immediately, his hand went up because he was a fairly young bloke and I felt awful because I'm like, oh, my God, you know, like he's obviously really, really embarrassed about this. He spent the rest of the show with his hand on his head, but half of the audience had seen it and half hadn't. And they were like, oh, wow. And then there was another time when I uh, did a benefit show for a friend in Antwerp and uh, he, he was in he was in jail in Poland. There was an, he was a Cuban guy who was an immigration problem. And so we did this benefits, you know, to, to get him out. And I'd brought this Dutch guy out of the audience and I was about to do the candlestick balance on him. And I looked down and he'd got a little bit excited. <laughs> and again, half the audience saw it and half didn't. <laughs> what like, did you do? I was like, I was like, Jesus, like I was doing this uh, New Yorker character. I was like, you're really happy to be here. And he was like, oh, this is going to do a bad Dutch accent. Now he's like, well, I can't help it. You're very sexy. <laughs> <laughs> and he wasn't perturbed um, at all. But one of the worst experiences I had was in Croatia. And this was, guys, was maybe 2004. 
three. So it's before, just before Croatia became part of the EU. Mm-hmm. And um, I'd started this show. So it was a festival, but and on a street pitch, but it's still, you know, people had gone for the show, but it was really streety feel. And at the back of the pitch, there were three guys. They were like Zagreb's answer to Larry, Moe and Curly. And they were all laughing. And then one just picked up a bottle cracked it over the over the other one's head there was blood pouring down his face and then the third one was like oh oh, oh, oh." i was like right so you know people are looking at this is happening behind me on a wall behind me people are looking at how deep are you in your show at this point are you just starting yeah but you know there's probably like already 50 people gathered because it's a festival and you know i can't compete with this behind me so anyway i start the show and just as i've sort of solidified the edge an ambulance comes through to get the guy who's bleeding i'm like okay okay we'll just roll with it you know time's not a problem here we'll just roll with it and then this elderly lady walked across the pitch and before i did the thing with the bag i used to have pool noodles and you know how light pool noodles yeah yeah no i used to use them to keep my volunteers in order because they make that big thwack but they don't hurt at all so i was this lady she was walking really she walked Right through the centre of the stage with her shopping, really slowly. Yeah. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. Right, she needs to move on. So I was gently playing with her. She was playing with me, and the whole audience were laughing. And I'm like, this is fun. And then she she swung her bags at me, comedy style, but they were full of really heavy shopping. And I was, <laughs> yeah. but she lost her balance. Oh. She over. And I was like, oh, shit, this is not good. Because I could see she landed really hard on her wrist. And I was yeah. like, this could, be, this could be really not good. And the audience started laughing. And I was like, oh, come on, don't, don't laugh at um, an, an old lady falling over. That's really not bad. Sorry, elderly woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went to pick her up. And, and as I went to pick her up, she really started hitting me. So because the audience laughed even more. And she eventually, like, she went off. And I was like, oh, God, can anything else go wrong in this show? So I'll carry on the show and everything seems to be fine. And then just as I'm standing on the two guys' shoulders at the end to do the finale, this huge Croatian policeman (laughs) rolls up to the edge, folds his arms and looks at me and he goes, you know, and I'm like, well, and I just know it's something to do with lady. I do my hat pitch and mention that maybe people could be generous because I think I might need a lawyer. <laughs> I'm saying it jokingly. The policeman at the end of the show takes my passport off of me. Oh, shit. And so, you know, Croatia's not in the EU at that time. And I'm like, oh, my God, he's taken my passport off me. And I'm like, well, when will I? So obviously he doesn't speak any English. It's all through a translator. When, when will I get the passport back? And... Uh, it's like, well, it depends if she presses charges or not. Wow. <laughs> what? Well, she like she she fell over. I didn't do anything. I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, witnesses. Like, you know, oh well, you know, we'll have to see. And I started to think, God, you know, like this is this seems like a really good way for you guys to get a lot of money out of me. So, anyway, just before I left, I got the passport back. But I was, you know, I was crapping it until I got through passport. Yeah. I got to the airport and. Yeah, it did kind of make me realise how, um, yeah, how, how close you can fly. Because it was not not the first time I've had problems <laughs> with city authorities like all of us. Yeah. Have I been in trouble? Yeah, yeah, I got, I got, uh, in, yeah, I've gotten stopped. 
a bunch of places like in New York on I can remember this. It was it was years ago when I could work Central Park, and Clark was in Clark was living here, and um, I got to Central Park. It was packed, and he goes, um, "The bad news." He goes, "You want the good news or the bad news?" I go, "What's the good news?" He goes, "The good news is you're next." I go, "What's the bad news?" He goes, "The breakers just got stopped by the police." I go, "Well, whatever. I'm not the break dancer, so I'll go, you know, do my show." So I do a show, and um, right at the end, right when I'm about to collect. The police officer comes up, walks through the crowd, hands me like a note or something. And I just said, it's all right, everybody. Just, you know, you don't be shy. Come on. And so then they're like, of course, booing the police, saying, you got better things to do, all this stuff. So then he comes over and the note said, you need to stop doing your show. Like, I don't know why he's giving me a note. It was like the dumbest thing ever. So then, um, so then, yeah, he wrote me out a ticket, um, partly because I think people were complaining to him so much. You know, that he felt like shit. And so then I had to go to court. And I, uh, he, they, so I just played it up. I said, they said, uh, what were you doing? I said, I was just doing a magic show for the families in the park. And uh, he goes, yeah, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to have a permit. I go, all right, I didn't know that I needed to have a permit for that. Uh, he goes, yeah, so you got to have six months. You have to not, you know, you can't get stopped again. There's no, not, no, no charges are filed or anything. You just can't get caught again in six months. I go, no, I won't, of course, because I didn't know that you're not supposed to do that. So I just made sure I didn't do shows on that day that the cop was working, which was like a Sunday. And I just avoided it for six months. And that was it. And then I've gotten stopped in other countries where they just shut me down and they say, you can't perform here. You need a permit. And then you either get a permit or you just do it again in another spot. But yeah, I've been stopped a handful of times. It's it's worrying, isn't it? The whole public-private space thing. You know, it's all like... stuff going on at Covent Garden at the moment and there's I always, know it's horrible there's always been that battle between the people who you know administrate the space technically they kind of lease the space don't they and they they own it in mm-hmm. a way I was doing a festival in uh, London in Borough Market and uh, I I'd, I'd done it the year before and I was doing it again and it was great because it was really so there's an artisanal French market there and it's Bastille Day and so it's you know I'm, I'm able to do a show that I'm really enjoying doing and speak a bit of French and make some political jokes and they're all liberal lefties and they're loving it and they're also you know all really well off and they you know they love to give you a you know it's always no it's not coins because they like to support the arts. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm thinking, oh, this is brilliant, you know, this is because they've given me a little bit of a retainer to be there, but not much. And the deal is, you know, I get to pass that for my time. And uh, so I'm like, this is great. And then this really angry looking woman comes over and turns the sound system down. And I'm like, I don't even know who she is. So I'm looking at her and I'm like, I walk over, turn it back up, carry on. She turns it down. I tell you, you know, and it ends mm-hmm. up being this like looking at me like she's you know like she's gonna kill me and she comes up to me at the end and starts telling me you can't do that and I'm like who are you I work for Borough Market I'm a manager and I'm like but I'm not working for you guys I'm working for of course this you know working for this organization mm-hmm. and um and she was like you can't do that and then and and then she said to me and you can't pass the hat so I was allowed to do the shows for the rest of the day, but I was thinking, God, you know what? Like, I'm get, I would be making so much more money in the hat than but, I'm making 
in in than I'm making from the fee they've given me. But I didn't want to. The people from the organisation that booked me was so lovely. Yeah, but and, they didn't sort it out in advance. Uh, yeah, but I did, and I didn't, and they were really apologetic, and because I didn't want to let them down and the spirit right, of right. the day, because you know, so it's like Bastille Day. You know, we'd already voted like idiots, like lemmings, to leave the EU, and so there's this, you know, real lovely feeling of you know EU remainers and sympathisers, and you know, just London that it's a cosmopolitan international city, and of course, you know, those people want to stay in the EU, so I didn't want to. Yeah. It felt to me like it wouldn't be in the collaborative, cooperative spirit of the day for me to go, even though I'm like, oh, God, I'm like, yeah. you know, lost several hundred quid here because of you. Uh, so frustrating. But but that thing of people not realising that, you know, like a, the, the, the public space, the private space thing, because obviously I think, you know, the general public think that we just rock up and they don't realise, you know, what what the, the whole permit process the whole yeah you what's know. behind the scenes so i mean some places obviously you just rock up and you do shows like you know i think like copenhagen and amsterdam although i guess maybe there's a permit system in amsterdam and I, I haven't been there in a long time but it used to just be open like lots of places used to be yeah. just open you can just go and do shows and no one bothered you um, but now everything is controlled and I mean, like, obviously, like that's you know, just so so many levels of that being detrimental to society. Mm -hmm. it seems, you know, like hyperbole, and it sounds overblown. But for one thing, that people with no money, street theatre. This is why, as well, I hate to keep banging on about Brexit, but I'm going to. That for for kids, you know, we used to have a wonderful exchange here with the EU. And so they would bring over, I can't remember the name of that incredible French company, you know, with the mechanical elephant. And so, so the EU would fund these festivals in poorer places in the UK and they would get these incredible street shows. Stuff and they'd so, never see. Yes, yeah, stuff that they'd never seen and they'd, they'd never get to see. And so, so that's a tragedy as well. But, you know, just on, and on a more basic, on a more fundamental level, that not being able to... I wouldn't see a busker not seeing a piece of live performance is and so many kids like literally don't I mean I think we don't I don't think about it because my mum and dad did take me to see the ballet they did take me to pantomime and theatre and musicals not all the time but you know I went and thinking how many kids just don't go yeah just Oh, and especially like you know, in more regional places as well. So it is is a tragedy, and also you know, from a larger political perspective, is that, and it takes me way back to what I said about the criminal justice bill. That these 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 in I sound like a right anarchist now. <laughs> Google's going to be hunting me, you know, for the the, the series listening in to do uh, it. But just that that thing of of, of of gathering and ownership of space and oh god i'm going to say surveillance capitalism i mean there's nothing yeah. wrong with capitalism per se where i'm a businesswoman you're a businessman you know we're all in you know i don't do shows for free but there needs to be yeah i i don't know i, I feel like we with everything that we we're, we're on this dangerous dangerous seesaw 
at the moment. And obviously, like, you know, what's happened in your country recently, terrible, terrible, terrible. And I, I would never suggest that public space should be opened up so that it was able to be subject to that kind of assault. Yeah. But when you can't simply... And obviously now as well, like, you know, the, the, these pe- people gathering to anti-mask protests, I mean, it's just... It's just it's ridiculous. Using COVID as an example against that. But, yeah, I think we really have to be mindful of access to public space and freedom yeah. of expression. Well, yeah, a, I mean, a couple of things that I was thinking when you were saying that is that what, what's been happening prior to the pandemic with, with pitches being shut down and, and all, all places being privatized and everything and losing space to perform. And then with the pandemic, there being no street performing I mean, I think there's some people doing it some places, but I feel like it's going to be harder to get it back to anywhere where it was before because of the absence of it for so long. Yeah. Um, that being said, though, here in New York, they started something called um, called Open Streets, uh, Open Stages, something. Anyway, it's this program that's going to start in, I think, March. Uh, because we have these streets that are, they call open, it is, there's streets called open streets, which are closed streets. So outside where I live out here, our street, we're right next to a park, our street is closed to, uh, only to um, residential traffic. So the, we put set up barriers and the signs and there's a few bunch of streets all over the city. I've got how many miles of streets, but it's a lot. And they're going to, they're, what they're trying to do is use, utilize those open spaces for performances for like, you know, not necessarily street performers, like, like, but, like, but, but like Broadway performers or anything like this, where people can apply to do a performance in these spaces, utilizing these open spaces for to help the artists that haven't been working put their art on the street for people. So it could be, you know, obviously street performers. Like when I when there's an application, I'll apply and see what that looks like. But you know, they're not necessarily the most crowded streets. Like I couldn't do a show on my block here. I mean, I did one in my park on a on a Sunday because Sunday's a farmer's market and. I didn't gather a crowd like a normal street show. I just, people were, it's this big field and people just set up blankets and I just started doing a show and people stopped to watch. But uh, I just think it's it's a nice idea what New York is doing as far as that, like trying to bring like live entertainment back and bring it out in the streets where anyone can enjoy it. But I don't think that's happening everywhere. And I think it's a really unique thing because of the fact that we started doing these open streets so that people had more room to move around socially distanced that it's great that the, they're coming up with this idea to utilize that. It'd be nice if that was happening other places, like realizing with the pandemic is let's open those private spaces to artists to gather crowds in a safe way and, and work again. Well, that's the, and then that's the, the thing, isn't it? Like street shows, out of every, the performances that could take place during the pandemic, like street theater is perfect. And Except when you're feel- using volunteers. Yeah, but I, absolutely, like, that, not possible. And but, also, uh, you know, we don't want to pull your crowd in. Yes, you know, so busking would be more difficult, obviously, but in terms yeah. of, you know, city councils or festival bodies or whatever, being able to gather people in, because in the summer I did some shows with Lost in Translation Circus, and they've got this beautiful circus tent, and those shows were able to go ahead because they just had the sides off, and they could obviously, you know, really strictly monitor where people were sitting but it Mm -hmm. wouldn't take a great deal I mean because I don't really see sadly I don't see 
you know, COVID being fully over until past the summer. I mean, mm-hmm. who knows? I mean, I can't want to touch wood or something, but who knows? <laughs> yeah. That's, but also, I mean, oh God, I sound like a right doomsayer, but that it is when this is over, is this the end of this or is this just the beginning of pandemics? Uh, I hope not. But either yeah, way, yeah. That, you know, I, I, I'm surprised that there's not a little bit more because it wouldn't be that difficult for city bodies like, you know, just like draw a chalk circle. We know chalk circle. You just draw it where people can stand and that. Because one thing, I, I mean, I think once this is over, the pandemic, that there will be a huge boom in entertainment. It will just be, you know, like like the 1920s after the Spanish flu. Yeah, people are hungry for it. And that's why, though, busking is so beautiful, isn't it? That if you can find a space to go out and you're not going to get hassled and you can just set up and do a show, I it is the, in a way, I think it's the purest art form in the world it's the purest certainly the most economically viable depending on if you're allowed to do it and yeah i don't know i just but obviously that it all comes down to money at the end of the day doesn't it and and so with the if something can't be monetized that you know, the, I, I, I mean, what isn't monetized anymore? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so we all look at like Facebook, the days when Facebook first started. Now you know, there's there's more and more adverts, and even in your, you know, if you if you use a, if you don't use a private email address, you re, be, be you know constantly being yeah. bombarded, and so I guess in a way, street theatre is just going to be like that because if the space can't be monetized, so in the case of Covent Garden. You know, the people who pay in a lot of money to rent those units and run those cafes and bars, you know, they, they every person to them is is is, is a is a money sum, yeah. aren't they? And so yeah. while they're watching your show, they're not drinking, they're yeah. not eating. Even though we would say, Well, you know, people come to see us, they throw a couple of coins in our hats and then they come and spend a lot more money in your yeah. establishment and they leave they leave happy and they're going to be happier and they're going to spend that but that's not people's perception the market's perception is that like you said they're taking money away from the store the stores like performers are doing these shows and no one's shopping at my store or maybe it's because your store is shit not because of the performers out there it's nothing to do that they don't correlate performers are there which is bringing more people which is bringing making people happy and they're going to go out and spend money and spend more time in this space. But unfortunately, that's not what's seen by the people who run these spaces. And I mean, you know, I guess philosophically as well, we bust in represents a threat, doesn't it, to the to to the perfect capitalist model because busking is so independent and self-contained, and you know, it doesn't rely on. Okay, like you know, you buy an amp or whatever, or you buy costumes, and you, you know, but but essentially we're we're self-contained, and we're not, you know, where the cafe is reliant on the council is reliant on the management company, where you know you can just rock up and do it. So I don't know, I don't know what the answer is, but I hope that there's a there's there's a space after this pandemic and, and places to gather and yeah, yeah. Well, Abby, we're not going to save the world in one conversation, are we? 
we can try. We can try. Um, I have one, one last thing I want to ask you because I, I have to go get my son at school soon. Um, but when I, a question I kept thinking about earlier, um, even though that was a really nice way to end, nice place to end it because we, we said some really nice things. But And I don't know now what I'll... Um... I'm 50 in March, so I was thinking, will I have one last hurrah? Will I do one last retrospective of street shows and characters I've done? You and should. Tri- you should do them all in one show. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Will I just focus on my book, Brian, which we didn't talk oh, about? Oh, yeah. Let's, my- let's talk about I meant that, yeah. I was going to segue into your book when we were talking about Hodge's book. But, yeah, let's talk about your book before we go. <laughs> doing it which is my first novel um out in march and uh will be available in hard copy and will probably be on amazon or i'll put it on my facebook page and might even link to the buskers page if i'm allowed to do that so yes yeah, what's it called my book. it's called everybody's doing it and what's it what's it about um sadly it's not about street performing but there's quite oh, no. a lot of uh, the london cabarets uh circuit in there obviously it's all fiction um but anyway it's about this woman she's uh she's not and this is not personal at all she's divorced she's a failing flailing actress she's childless she's single and she's about to turn 39 and she's like right you know what by the time i'm 40 i'm gonna be married and i'm gonna be pregnant and so she starts off on this quest of course like cue lots of internet dating and um, but it's really a story about a woman and her friendship circle. And uh, I started writing it eight years ago, and wow. I had a really literary agent. And I'm I we had a parting of the way, so now I've got an independent guy publishing it, which I'm really glad about. And the one good thing about the hiatus is that it's allowed me to go back and rewrite the thing, and change it and make it much more diverse. Right. So, yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> cool. All right. Yeah, we'll definitely we'll we'll put a link to it on this when this episode goes up, even if it's I can always add it afterwards so people can find it. Um that's awesome. There's another um um Dana Dana Smith. He's also an author. He's a American I mean, I think he's performing internationally, but he's an old school street performer and he's written a several novels as well. So I think it's just like, it's another way to be creative, another way to have a creative outlet. Well, the good thing about the writing is obviously it's, you know, pandemic proof to a degree, although not if people don't buy your book. But um, I, <laughs> I, I, I was, I, this book, you know, I was so obsessed with writing when I first started. Actually, I had a gig in, I had a little tour in Sweden and I was sitting in the back of the rental car, you know, with, on the laptop on the way to gigs and, oh God, I, I kind of regret it now. I was so antisocial because, you know, bumping into people like Katie Wright, Dot Miss Dynamite, you know, I, yeah, I'm not yeah. seeing a really sorry Katie, I'm just in the middle of the At the first chapter. Yeah, because I was obsessed. Like, sorry, I know I've not seen you for five years, but I've just got, yeah. 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 Well, it's good to speak to you, Brian. Yeah, so good to see you. Yeah, uh, thank you for being part of the project and telling your stories and sharing wisdom. I'm honoured because I've always thought of myself as the world's worst busker. 
No. Because I was never any good at passing the hat until Nigel, Mr. Spin, taught me some psych tricks. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, I'll tell you what, Nigel could set up a business on um, teaching people to pass the hat. Oh, yeah, he's done that with a bunch of people. Yeah, right? His mum's a psychologist. And, yeah. Because, and, uh, obviously, like, he made massive hats because he's a great performer. But I was like, Nigel, like, how do you... And he's like, happy, it's just science. And, um, yeah, Nigel's like, I talk about money all through my show. And I was like, what? No, you don't. He's like, yes, I do, Abby. You, you know, when I ask the audience to clap and I say, you know, so depending where he was, like, you know, if he was in Australia, he'd be like, oh, come on, I want a 10. I don't, that's, that's a five. I don't, I don't want five. Come on, I want everybody energy, energy. I want 10. And so obviously, I guess if he was somewhere like Japan, he'd be like 100, you know, I want 100%. But he'd basically tailor those messages all the way through. And yeah, and I did, I did employ his techniques. And I have to say, it did make a big difference in my hat. So yeah, there you go. But, well, but you, uh, yeah, you definitely uh, are a big part of the 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 history of our our world. So oh God, doesn't, it doesn't it doesn't matter that you didn't make money in the hat. You you've done <laughs> lots of shows, and you've I think you've influenced more people than you realize. Well, and I have to say, you know, it's like I was thinking today before talking to you about, you know, all the people I've bumped into all over the world. I was at a festival in Spain, in Barcelona, all on my own. And, you know, I was walking down the street and I was, it was a lovely night. And I was thinking, oh, this is great. But if only I saw someone I knew and then coming the opposite direction was Trent, Trent the Birdman. What? <laughs> And I ran down the street, and she jumped on him like a monkey. <laughs> happy, 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 happy. <laughs> yeah, incredible. You know, see, seeing people we know all over the world and it's like seeing beautiful. the Chipolatas, you know, when Jasper was still around in, you know, in, in Japan and just thinking like so, so many happy memories and, and fun times and, you know, hopefully there's more to come, but really like a, a global a global family and um lifelong friendships and also what's funny though is like like you know not I, when was the last time we spoke i don't know i'm not sure if i've seen you since edinburgh 2008 is that when it was well or stockholm maybe yes yeah, stockholm okay so was that maybe i think that was 2012 but you know it's it's a fair whack of time yeah probably Stockholm but just like you, you know everybody is still the same yeah and there's no there's no you don't you know we caught up a little bit before we started but there's no it's just you're back onto it yeah you're back in it because yeah. it is this global family like you said and and if any one of us was anywhere in the world and we ran into each other you'd be back right in where you left off the last time yeah p literally picking up from the last conversation yeah yeah, and I really, I really hope that, you know, that more people come on board because the one thing I did notice is that, you know, with things becoming, things seem to be becoming more professional. And I don't know about you, but I noticed like the party aspect of festivals <laughs> started to disappear. And I was like, well, I get it, you know, because you're a really high skilled circus artist and obviously you can't have a hangover mm -hmm. if you're going to those 25 plates on a tightrope, you know, with razor blades balanced on your head <laughs> and a cycle spinning on your foot. I mean, that's going to be difficult with a hangover. But I always kind of felt like the hang, you know, the hang and the party Absolutely. was an essential part of 
what we do because it's just about people getting pissed. You know, people would talk about ideas and politics and shows or people or it, it, it just, you know, it's that it, it, it was the, it was the, the grit. It, it was the grit, it was the the salt, the, the umami, what a wing do I sound like? But it was that, it, it was, it was that, that tang that made us who we were and made people like Living Space go out and do crazy stuff and, you know, it, yeah. you know, talking to you about Nigel, you know, your, your character and before you'd started doing the show and just, you know, how much fun it was to talk about ideas and show ideas and that, People, people could be a pain on the pitch, you know. Obviously, because sure. it could be dog, literally, but people could also be incredibly generous with tips and ideas and punchlines and yeah. yeah. So let's hope that carries on. I, I know. I, I hope so. And on that note, <laughs> thank you so much, Abby. It's awesome. Oh, really good to speak to you, and um, yeah, great to see you. Here's to hoping that in the near future, we can get back to that all-important hang after a day of shows. Guess what? Did you notice? We've got a brand new logo! It was designed by Jeff Ritchie, and you can find him on Instagram at fredpaints23. I'll have a link to his website in the episode notes. New logo also means new merchandise! And I'll have a link to our online shop in the episode notes. Surf on over and have a look at how you can proudly display the logo while at the same time supporting the podcast. We get a little bit off each purchase. Speaking of supporting the podcast, why not consider being a sponsor? If you'd like to, or know someone who would, contact me at magic at buskerhalloffame.com. You can also visit the Busker Hall of Fame website and throw a little love into our online hat by clicking on the donate button, or become a sustaining supporter of this project at patreon.com forward slash buskerstories. Music for this podcast came from 357 Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend about it and leave us a five-star review. It'll help get the podcast noticed, and we'd really appreciate it. If you'd like someone to be interviewed or feel a certain voice has not been heard, please reach out to me and let me know. We're doing our best to capture interviews and stories with as many performers as we possibly can. It's up to you to help fill in the gaps. So on behalf of myself and the rest of the team of the Busker Hall of Fame, remember, if you can't laugh at yourself, find someone else and laugh at them. And also check out the merch. Ba-na-ba-ba-na-ba. Ba-na-ba-na-ba.